0: 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 15. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. A lot of people are interested in the appearance of their bodies these days, but they're not willing to spend a dime on the appearance of their soul, the condition of their soul. They spend thousands of dollars through the years on beauty creams and treatments. They're willing to get shots with gels and poisons in order to make themselves look better. They may spend even more, surge- more money on surgeries to lift parts of the body that have fallen and to fluff up other parts that are shrinking. They do that sort of thing. Then they go to the tattoo parlor to permanently decorate what I believe that God intended to be simply the way well, it was. And if they aren't successful in these things, then they go out and they pay a trainer to help them improve things. They go to the gym to sculpt their bodies and they sweat and they work and they, they hire this trainer to get them even better. The world has multitudes of personal trainers and coaches and beauticians of all varieties of things, coaches in all areas of life, to deal with people's perceived imperfections, physical imperfections. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Christians had personal prophets, the way you could go to the gym and hire a personal trainer someone to watch uh, uh, us follow us along and point out things that we should do better we could do better and we need to take this thing out of our life that thing out of our life in order to please the lord better wouldn't it be wonderful if every church had its own personal uh, elijah or isaiah to watch over us someone on retainer perhaps like the corporation has the lawyer on retainer. And whenever we felt that there was a need, we could go to our particular prophet and make an appointment with him and sit down and deal with this problem, this question. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had all the answers to eschatology questions? Just uh, go to this expert and get it all done. Uh, Or maybe he is a part of the congregation and and he watches over us and he taps us on the shoulder and says, you know, Tuesday 3 o'clock, you and I need to get together and talk about a few things. Just have our own personal spiritual trainer. Well, the church in Corinth came pretty close to having one of those personal spiritual trainers. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, he wrote by way of the inspiration of God. This was the Holy Spirit speaking through this man. And like others, uh, he was moved by the Holy Ghost in the things that he wrote. Here in this chapter, elsewhere, Paul, with God's authority, encouraged the church about specific praiseworthy things... And he also criticized that church for the great many things that were problems there. Brother Austin and I were talking the other day. I wonder if we'd have much fellowship with the church in Corinth because they had so many problems. We and our Pharisaical opinions. He, he he. Paul crushed some of the sins that they had there in the church in the the uh, the, the mortar of God's holy word. That church in particular, in the midst of God's blessings and many praiseworthy characteristics, had serious problems. Now, in this particular chapter 9, Paul, their trainer, is urging them forward in something that they were already doing reasonably well. This is talking about money. This chapter is talking about financial aid for the famine-stricken and persecuted saints back in Israel, in Jerusalem. There's no rebuke here. None needed. Only praise and exhortation, because the Corinthians had already proven themselves to be generous people, and they had the wealth to be generous. Sometime earlier, that church had promised to give a really good sum of money to Paul, to carry back to Jerusalem. And now, as he heads down from Macedonia or wherever he was, he's going to go through Corinth, Achaia, pick up this purse of gold and carry it off to its intended destination. And as a result, this chapter provides some wonderful lessons about giving, about money, something that we don't usually preach on around here. Many Christians take verse number 6 out of its context. But it is specifically talking about fiscal responsibility. But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. He's talking about money. And verse number 7 makes a statement which a lot of people need to memorize God loveth a cheerful giver. We're talking about money. Does that mean that Jehovah has other emotions toward people who are not cheerful givers? I'll leave that with the Lord. Verse number seven also suggests that it is perfectly scriptural to plan your giving to the Lord and to the Lord's work. You can set a schedule if you're... Situation warrants it. You can have goals. I intend to give such and such during this coming year. Every man, according as he purpose, purposeth, if you get the gist of it, let him give. Let it so. Let him give. And verse number eight is often taken out of its context. Money. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. We like to take that out of the context and apply it to whatever problem or situation we're in. But the context is money. One of the great lessons of this chapter is that our generosity is directly and unbreakably linked to the Lord's grace toward us. Mm-hmm. We have something we can give because we have received. The Lord has been kind to us. We give because to us has already been given. And then we give because we know that the Lord will give again and again. It creates a circle, a cycle, unbreakable chain. The more we give, the more the Lord blesses. Don't quote me as saying the Lord is going to make you wealthy if you give to his cause. That's not what I am saying. The Lord has many ways to bless us. And he does bless us in a great many ways. But the promise is that the Lord will use one of those thousands of ways to bless us if we are faithful in, in using the blessings that he has given to us. Then there's another lesson, one that a great many people don't really want to hear. Verse number 13 shows that our generosity is directly linked to our reception of the gospel. Whilst the experiment of this ministration, giving... They glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ. Those people in Jerusalem, those saints that perhaps were saved during the days of the Lord Jesus, now see you out here in Greece and they rejoice in the gospel being presented to you and they see the blessing that you have to share with them. Whilst the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God on your professed sub- subjection under the gospel and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. As a general rule, misers know nothing about the grace of God. Saved people give. Self-centered, penny-pinching Cheapskates are either lost or they're horribly away from the Lord, backslidden from the Lord. By the way, there are three euphemistic words used to describe the Corinthians giving in this chapter there is giving, and there is blessings, and there's bountifulness. There is grace. Grace is the source of all our generosity. God's unmerited favor to us. Blessing is the effect. It is a blessing to us, and as they say, it's a blessing to give. It's a blessing to someone else. The word bountifulness in verse number 11 is more often translated elsewhere in the Bible as simplicity rather than liberality or bounty. It's talking about a wonderful, single-minded desire to give and to be a blessing. We give not in order to receive. We give not in order to impress the person to whom we are giving this gift. We give because we give. And we enjoy giving. It is the blessing of the Lord. Grace is the source of our generosity. Blessing is the effect of our generosity. And bountifulness or simplicity is the manner in which the Lord wants us to give. But then there is one more lesson from this chapter. And it is that all of it reflects the glory of the Lord. And praises him. Brings glory to him. Verses 13 and 11. By the experiment of this ministration they glorify God. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness. Which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. That brings us back down to the last verse of 1 Corinthians 9. Thanks be unto God for this his unspeakable gift. There are three general explanations for the word unspeakable, unspeakable gift. Some think that it refers to the gospel. This unspeakable gift is the gospel, the the message of the Lord's salvation, that communication that we're supposed to share with other people. But the gospel is not really the theme of this chapter. And of course, it's never out of place to present Christ no matter what subject we're on if it's a biblical spiritual subject it's never out of place but this I don't believe this is referring to the gospel others think that Paul is referring to the wonderful gift of money that uh, he was expecting to collect and take on to Jerusalem but that gift hasn't been given as yet and anyway no matter what its size it wouldn't be unspeakable There's always room for a little bit more. I think Paul is talking about the greatest gift that has ever been given. I think that in this last verse he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone might say, How does this relate to the rest of the chapter? Well, I just said that any subject can be brought back to Christ if it begins at the right place. And once again... We see that Paul's mind is never very far from his Savior. No matter what he is talking about. We love him because he first loved us. We give because he first gave to us. We smile because he smiled upon us. And we're moderately generous because he has been exceedingly generous to us. How is Christ Jesus the unspeakable gift? I have a very simple outline for you this morning. Paul is talking about a gift that is unspeakably great. Mm. Go back to unspeakable. What, what, what is the meaning of that? Three chapters later, in talking about himself, I believe, Paul refers to a man who was caught up into paradise where he heard, quote, unspeakable words. Then Paul defines unspeakable there in the context by saying that it was not lawful to repeat those words. But that's a different Greek word and a different set of circumstances than what we find here in chapter 9. What Paul saw that day was so wonderful, so special, so glorious, I think it would have been hurtful to human beings to know what it was God saw or what Paul saw in chapter 12. Paul was forbidden to repeat what he saw. Perhaps if we knew what he saw that day, we would become so homesick for paradise that we would be useless in this world. Perhaps. I don't know that that's the case, but perhaps. We'd shirk our responsibilities if we were that knowledgeable about what's coming up for us. Here in this chapter, we have a different word. And it simply means that there are no human words to describe the gift that's referred to in verse 15. Words fail. Language fails us because our minds are so corrupted by sin and the curse that they cannot comprehend the Lord in all of His fullness. He is indescribable, unspeakable. It's not illegal to speak about the Lord's love or His character, His sacrifice, His promise. In fact, that's what we're supposed to do. We are commanded to do the very best we can to repeat and to describe the Savior and His work. But... It is simply that our best fails miserably at actually communicating who our Savior is, what sort of Savior he is. I think it was Mary Weather Lewis who was the first white man to reach the headwaters of the Missouri River Most of you have never seen the Missouri. I have, it's a pretty good sized river. Uh, It came as a tiny spring out of a mountain, not very far over here in Montana. Little tiny thing. And uh, as I say, I think it was Meriwether. uh, He was able to stand on one side of the little rivulet that came out of the ground, one foot on one side, one foot on the other side. It was a tiny little thing at that point in time for some reason or other, maybe it still is. But what struck him was he had come up all the way from where the Missouri runs into the Mississippi. He had come up all that way through Montana and the Dakotas and whatnot uh, to find this headwaters there in Montana. Perhaps it illustrates the unspeakability of Christ. There is a constant flow which comes out of the Lord. We first taste it in our salvation. And the more we get to know him, the wider it becomes. The greater the power of that flow, the greater the knowledge is, the more it moves us until it is a monstrous river of love and grace by the time it reaches its destination. I'm speaking of Christ. Ten billion years into eternity, we won't be using years to measure eternity, but if there was such a thing, we would still be in the beginning stages of learning about our Savior. He is infinite, and we are not, even with the blessings that we will possess at that time. Some theologians think they understand all the eternal decrees and counsels and covenants of God. And I'm happy to know that there are people who can explain the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. That's all fine and good. But I don't profess to fully grasp those divine things of the Lord. But I do know this. Jesus loves me. And he saved me. And that's a good place to start. That is the place to start. Why should the savior choose to become incarnate? I don't profess to understand. Ah, I've got a few arguments here and there. Yes. But I don't, I don't fully understand. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, we did behold His glory, but did we understand it? Do we yet understand what we are seeing? God the Holy Spirit declared Him who is undeclarable, unspeakable. Do words ever fail when you want to describe some image, some picture that you've seen? I have some acquaintance. I'm connected to a, a, a website in Canada that sends me uh, landscapes of Canadian, uh, Canadian landscape. And usually, they're the very best of the best that get sent along And quite often I can just reply, I do reply by saying, wow, this morning I said, what a wonderful creator. What I try to do is get these people to consider, this is really spectacular. This is really something. This is really the beginning of what there is available to the children of God. How how glorious, I've even put it on there replied to some of these pictures if this is earth what's heaven going to be like wow and words fail I use the word wow yesterday I used the word fantastic these words don't they're not enough even to talk about some of the blessings in this world and when it comes to the Lord Jesus unspeakable there's nothing nothing left There's only one way to see Christ and learn about Him, and that is by faith. Only by surrendering to the wooing and uh, the Holy Spirit submitting to His love and resting in His grace and growing in Him can we begin to unravel this unspeakableness, giving us a new word to use now and then. Oh, what an unspeakable gift is our Savior. 98% of the people of this world 99% will never know, never even begin to understand his magnificence. And I fear that includes a great many people who are attending Christian churches today. This is an unspeakable gift because it is unspeakably essential. There's no way to adequately illustrate or convey this thought. As sinners... Our guilt before God is so enormous. The weight of that is so enormous, enormous, there's no way to escape it. Mm. Scientists are sending submarines down to the bottom of the uh, uh, deepest trenches in the Pacific. I mean, thousands of feet underground. ground. Under the water, I should say. And they have to be very special submarines. Because your ordinary submarine would be crushed by the weight of that water. Our wickedness carries upon it a weight that is not measurable by our minds, hearts, standards. Our wickedness is unspeakable. And therefore the gift that deals with our wickedness is beyond comprehension, is unspeakable. The wages of sin is death. Simple statement. But none of us understand eternal death. We can't. We might be able to grasp physical death, but eternal separation from the source of of all life is beyond us. There's nothing that I can do to personally be free from the guilt of my sin. Not even physical death can deliver me. There's no amount of penance, no sum of money, no imaginary sacraments that can deliver me from the bondage of my own guilt. There's no church membership. There's no number of good deeds or alms. There's nothing that I can do or be that can free me from the effects of my sinfulness. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it is indescribable unspeakable that gift of God is unspeakably essential because of the depths of the sinner's guilt and weakness as I say we're absolutely hopeless absolutely helpless there was there was a poor man at the pool of Bethesda during the days of the Lord Jesus he believed that when the water started to swirl a little little bit The first person into the water would be healed of whatever malady he possessed. And there are a great many people there believing it as well. For years, apparently, he had been going to the edge of Bethesda, but he was never the first one into the water, and therefore he was never healed. He was so crippled, there was no way for him to even fall into the water before someone else did He said to the Lord Jesus, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. And then Jesus gave to him those humanly unspeakable words. Why don't you just get up and pick up your bed and go home? Made no sense. Walk. Rise, take up thy bed and walk. In our guilt, in our helplessness, we are... Absolutely hopeless. No wonder Jesus' grace is so superlative, unspeakable. That is an unspeakable gift because it is unspeakably free. The gift of salvation through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is unspeakably free in two ways. First, it is a gift of free grace. Unmerited favor of God. There may be a sense in which God finished his creation and left Adam and Eve in it there in the garden. It may have been, I don't know that this is provable or even logical, but it may have been self sustaining at that point. When the Lord said that everything was good, it wasn't tainted with any form of corruption. The plants and the animals lived in perfect harmony. There was no death. There was no need of death. Perhaps creation was designed to function perfectly, bringing eternal glory to God uh, in its outworking. But then the crown of that creation chose to rebel against his creator, and all creation suffered his curse. Following that fall, it was necessary that God himself care, maintain the upkeep of the creation. Jehovah is the greatest of all maintenance men. Just to maintain our few decades of life on this planet, Requires the constant care of the Creator and the sustainer of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gift. But that unmerited favor, that grace is nothing compared to the unspeakable grace of God's salvation. Right. The 70 years we have in this world, the 90 years we have in this world, maintained by the grace of God, is not to be compared with a moment's. Relationship with God in glory—that God would even think about delivering saints, delivering sinners from the bondage of their self-determined corruption—is unfathomable. And then the Lord chose to make that deliverance a hundred percent free gift. Salvation is absolutely free. No strings attached. No prerequisites. No post-requisites. There is unequivocally nothing that any sinner can do to merit or maintain salvation. The moment that he even thinks about doing something in order to be saved, the moment he thinks about doing something in order to earn This free gift is no longer a free gift. It ceases to be of grace. If the gift of salvation from sin is not freely given, it is unattainable because we have no means of reaching for it. If the Lord didn't give it, we could never have it. It's not for sale. It's it can't be stolen from God. And then that gift is unspeakably free because if we hadn't been told about it, we'd never conceive of it. There is no man that seeketh after God or who seeks God's kind of salvation. There is no sinner who is truly aware of his lostness and his need of a savior until the Lord teaches that person of that need. It's not natural to us. Indeed, this Savior and his salvation from sin is an unspeakable gift. And this unspeak- is unspeakable because it is unspeakably suitable to our needs. Amen. Jesus once rested at Jacob's well in Samaria, and he told a thirsty woman there, I am the water of life. To the spiritually blind, he said, I am the light of the world. He that believeth on me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He said to the spiritually hungry, I am the bread of life. To the lonely and the cold, he said, I am the door. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. To the lost, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The gift which Paul describes as indescribable or unspeakable is in part indescribable because it was so comprehensive in fact it's so complete and so thorough that we are not yet aware of how desperately we needed it and how far it has already gone in saving us it's beyond us its depth and its width and its height and its length make it impossible for us to escape this unspeakable gift, Christ Jesus. Everything that we lack spiritually is supplied through Christ and His sacrifice. Everything. Amen. Amen. How can this short time with, uh, with you this morning... 30 minutes or so how can I begin to describe what cannot be described how can I speak about that which is unspeakable I can't I fail how can a sinner begin to comprehend or explain the unfathomable depths of the grace of God at first thought we might say it's impossible that isn't quite true How can a sinner comprehend the grace of God? By reaching out and receiving it. Trusting God. Believing Him. The same way that Paul began to understand it. By humble surrender to that grace of God, kneeling at the cross of Christ, we can begin to grasp what the Lord has prepared who the Lord is by acknowledging our helplessness and our sinfulness and our willingness to turn from them we can begin to taste and see that the Lord is indeed good putting our trust in the one who is that gift the son of God the savior by by resting on the grace of the almighty he will fill up that which we need from Him. We've got to humbly surrender before the Lord. We must acknowledge our wickedness. We must turn from it, repent of it, and look into the face of Christ Jesus. By faith, we are saved. This morning I ask you whether or not You're interested in this unspeakable gift. If the Lord is saying, I'd like a little more of it. If he's saying to your heart, you need this, then follow on. Turn to the cross. Repent of your sin. Speak to someone who knows a little bit of the Lord. And let him share with you some of the bounty that's in Christ Jesus. Will you turn to Christ this morning? Please stand.